When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, folks, and welcome to a History of Egypt podcast interview. My guest today is Dr. Bob Breyer. Dr. Bob Breyer needs very little introduction. He is one of the most famous Egyptologists working in the field today. Dr. Breyer's specialty is mummies, the preservation of ancient Egyptian bodies and what they can teach us about those people. In 2022, Dr. Breyer is publishing a new book, Tutankhamun and the Tomb that Changed the World. This book recently made headlines for various revelations, which we will discuss in the interview. My thanks to Dr. Breyer and his team for reaching out to me to discuss this new book. Come, enjoy a lovely discussion with Dr. Bob Breyer. Good morning, Dr. Breyer, and welcome to the History of Egypt podcast. How are you today? I'm good, Dominic. Good. Good. Thank you. Thank you for coming on the show and for uh, reaching out to discuss your new book. I know everyone's very excited about what's coming and the, particularly some of the new information that's revealed about it, or within it, I should say. So let's let's start with the sort of headline topic, which is <laughs> the the new evidence, we should say, of additional thefts that Carter undertook while clearing the tomb of Tutankhamun. So Egyptologists and academics, broadly speaking, have known for decades that Carter took certain small objects, nothing necessarily too big, but he did take them, and they turned up at various times over his life and following his death. But this new this new piece of information is quite significant, both with how close it is to the actual discovery and still the in-progress clearing of the tomb, and the fact that it involves other prominent Egyptologists of the time in what is seems to be a very quiet scandal within the small community. So <clears throat> the first question I wanted to ask regarding this was, how did this particular letter and this aspect come to life? How did, how did you become aware of this? Yeah, the, the letter you're referring to is one that is written by Sir Alan Gardner, hmm. who is a great translator of hieroglyphs. And he actually wrote the book that most of us learned from called Egyptian Grammar. Um, and Gardner wrote a letter to Howard Carter saying that he's been put in a very bad place, Gardner. He, uh, Carter gave him an amulet and didn't tell him it came from Tutankhamun's tomb. And then Gardner just happened to show it to Rex Engelbach, who was the curator of the Egyptian Museum in Cairo. And Engelbach said, wait a second, this is one of Tutankhamun's amulets. We have others just like it from the same mold. And, and, and Gardner got really furious with Carter. And he wrote, and he wrote a, a Dear Carter letter saying, you know, you've really put me in a very bad position. Um, I really feel terrible that you've done this. Um, and I found this letter, a friend of mine had it, a friend who collects 
letters relating to archaeology, especially Egyptology, and he happened to have it. And I'd never seen this letter. Now, there have been, you know, Egyptologists knew there was such a letter somewhere because um, we, we have people write biographies of how of Carter and, and talk about stealing objects. Mm-hmm. And, and this letter really shocked me because it showed that the scope of the thefts were wider. You know, that that we knew, as you say, that Carter had taken some objects. We know which objects. We know where they were. We know what happened. He wasn't selling them. He just felt he was entitled. He was, you know, this was his tomb almost done. And and here we have this letter from Gardner, which shows that he's giving away things to friends and not even saying it comes from Tutankhamun's tomb. And in this letter that Gardner writes to Carter, he also says, you know, I'm telling Engelbach, and he wrote to Engelbach to tell him, now, just to clear the air, Engelbach, I want you to know also that Carter gave me the seals to Tutankhamun's tomb, and I gave them to my kid. Hmm. And so they're tossing around these Tutankhamun objects like they're, they're nothing. And it's kind of surprising. I mean, it really is. I was surprised. And another thing that surprised me about this letter that I think is important, the, the definitive biography of Howard Carter is by Harry James, who was the keeper of antiquities at the British Museum. And Harry James is a great scholar. And he's a good friend, was a good friend. And when Harry says something, you're pretty sure it's right. Mm-hmm. And Harry's presentation of this um, maybe falling out with Gardner or something, really minimizes it tremendously. And, and when, I, you know, when I read the biography, I always took it for granted. This is an accurate depiction of what it is. But it really isn't with respect to this. I think Harry James admired Carter so much that he just didn't want to say bad things about him. Mm-hmm. And he gave the best possible spin. So what we get in the biography is Carter's letter denying everything. But we never see Gardner's letter spelling out exactly what's going on. So I think it's, it's the scope of the theft is, is larger than we thought. Um, and it gives an, you know, sort of an, a better indication of what's in Carter's head. You know, this is my tomb. Yeah, absolutely. So cycling back to the, the provenance of the letter, how did your friend come to acquire it? I never asked. Oh, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> I never so, asked. <clears throat> so, I don't know. so we have, we have Gardner's, we have Gardner's letter and we have yes. at least through James, we have Carter's letter post-event yeah. denying it. Yeah. Do we have any further information about, you know, intrasocial fallout from the situation, or is it purely contained in these letters? Um, well, well, let me put it this way. Gardner never, as far as we know, Gardner never spoke to Carter again. Mm. And I think that ended the relationship. Um, yeah. Now, now when, when Carter first discovers the tomb, he knows that he's going to need a translator. And Gardner was the one who was going to do it, really. Mm. Um, and, and I think that was always assumed throughout the whole excavation almost. Unfortunately, there weren't very many texts that needed difficult translating, you know, but but Carter had hoped for papyri, things to learn about Tutankhamun's life, things like that, but it wasn't forthcoming. It wasn't there. Um, so Gardner didn't really have much interaction with translating things, but he was going to be the translator and then never spoke to him again, as far as we know. I think it ended the relationship. So... To a certain extent, that must have had a very significant, I guess, impact on the overall publication of the tomb, because logically, if that relationship had been maintained, if Carter hadn't made this grievous error, we might have got publications of things like the shrines and the coffins much sooner than we actually did. That's right. That That's absolutely right. Gardner, I think there were things that Gardner still would have liked to have translated, could have been interesting, but we didn't get it. No. So really, this... This minor incident does have a much larger impact on the Egyptological understanding of Tutankhamun. 
Yeah, I think so. And, and it's a good point you make. Also, you know, I think one of the things that it may have affected is Carter's later life. And what I mean by that is we have archaeologists in England who were knighted. There are quite a few archaeologists who have been knighted. Even it's Sir Alan Gardner and it's Sir Arthur Evans at Knossos. And, and, and it's, you know, da 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 da. We have plenty of archaeologists who have been knighted. Not so for Howard Carter. Um, mm. It may have affected that. Also, to be fair, um, he didn't come from the right side of the tracks. Howard Carter was not a highly educated man. He was self-educated. He was educated at home, didn't go to high school or anything like that. And um, so, he, so he wasn't really the kind of person that the, that the empire liked tonight. Um, mm. So he never became you know, Sir Howard. Um, he did get an honorary doctorate in America. That was the only honorary award he ever got. Um, mm. So this may have affected that also, that he was never knighted. He, he always felt that he didn't get his due in, in England. Mm. Understandable. So, okay, well, in terms of your personal or professional assessment of Carter, how much, how much did this actually change your perspective on him and his work? Not one bit. Okay. I, I still have the same professional opinion of him. He was amazing. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's the one who showed archaeologists how to do a tomb. Um, you know, he realized that as soon as he discovered this thing, that he needed a team and he put together an all-star team. He knew he needed conservators. He knew he needed an engineer who might help him take out the, take down the shrines, things like that. He needed, you know, artists. He needed this and that. A great photographer, Harry Burton. So he puts together this all-star team. And as far as I know, he's the first archaeologist to do in situ photographs of every item in an intact tomb. Right. I mean, this is this is earth-shattering. Nobody ever did that. And he was so meticulous. You know, like they would have chests that had layers of fragile clothing in it. And he would photograph the chest, take the lid off. Harry Burton would come in, photograph the top layer, and then they'd have to conserve the top layer so it could be moved because it was fragile. So you'd have Mason Lucas coming in and pouring paraffin wax on the clothes. They would move off the top layer, and then he'd call in Harry Burton again and say, photograph the next layer, please. And, you know, repeat. And they'd do it over and over and over. And it would sometimes take a week to empty a single chest, but he was willing to do that to get the record. And in addition to Burton's wonderful photographs, he was drawing things all the time. He, you know, he's trained as an artist, and we had these wonderful index cards that he did, these drawings of the pectorals, the beadwork, things like that, that were so fragile, he was afraid he'd lose it. So it's a fabulous record of a tomb. So the fact that he was taking objects, that's a different thing. That's, that's sort of a, a social, sociological, psychological view of Carter. But as, a, as an archaeologist, man, he was, he was terrific. He was ahead of his time, and he showed us all how to do it. Very good. Um, going back to the, <clears throat> the social or psychological question, there is one thing I did notice when I was researching the excavation of the tomb, and particularly through the biographies, is that many of Carter's colleagues did wind up not particularly caring for him as a person, but they all do seem to have respected his work ethic in many respects. Yes, absolutely. Carter was a difficult man. He was not an easy man to work with. He was, he was quite a loner, didn't have many close friends as far as we know. Um, and, and so people were a little bit, you know, nonplussed by him. So he didn't have close friends. That's absolutely right. But they all respected his work. You know, they, they did. Hmm. Very good. And one question I would like to ask about the, the all-star team, if you will, is the, the unwrapping of Tutankhamun's mummy. Because mm. in the forthcoming book, you do, you do touch on this and one of Carter's perhaps stranger or more questionable decisions in terms of 
who he chose to assist him with the examination of Tutankhamun's mummy, which is uh, Douglas Derry. Yes. And you, you note that Douglas Derry was, compared to some of his contemporaries, not particularly interested or expert in ancient Egyptian society or culture. Yeah. Didn't have the level of experience with mummies as, say, somebody like Grafton Elliot Smith would have. So right. in your in your research for the new work, do you have any any clear idea of why exactly Carter went with this particular path in terms of unwrapping Tutankhamun's mummy? And considering the damage that um, ultimately occurred to the body, do you think that was avoidable, perhaps? This is a hypothetical, but... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let me go to the last part. Yes, it was avoidable. Mm. I think it was, to some extent. Um, I think the reason he chose Derry was that it wasn't a thoughtful decision. Okay. Carter wasn't the mummy person. And mm. in, in his times, many, many Egyptologists were not really experienced with mummies. And many, even today, there are Egyptologists who don't want to be around mummies. Mm. It's now a, a sort of sub-specialty of Egyptology, people who work with mummies, the mummy people, as we, mm. they call us. And, and, you know, we have our own Congress. There's a mummy Congress. The 10th, the 10th Mummy Congress is now taking place in Bolzano. Um, and, you know, we, we have specialists and special companies. We have that now. But then they didn't have it. And, and Carter didn't really care much about the mummy, I'm afraid. It, mm. it wasn't an artifact like a pectoral. It wasn't an artifact like a golden shrine. And he didn't view it as an artifact. He didn't view it as a priceless object to preser be preserved at all cost. So it was a kind of thoughtless decision. Oh, Derry is an atomist. He'll be able to figure out how old Tutankhamun was. And that was true. Um, Derry was a good anatomist. But he ripped the body apart. He just mm. didn't care either. He he didn't understand that this was an artifact mm. to him. It was an autopsy, you know. And what do you do in autopsies? You cut, you dissect, you take things apart. Um, so he made no special attempts at preserving the mummy of Tutankhamun, and it was literally ripped apart. And I think it's because Carter just wasn't a mummy person, didn't care much about mummies. Okay, what does that say? What does that suggest about his relationship with? Tutankhamun the figure, because often in sort of public imagination, and especially with media portrayals, there's a very popular way of, you know, connecting Carter and Tutankhamun as two figures connected across time. Yes. And yet his act, his act, attitude towards the actual physical remains of Tutankhamun does seem, if not dismissive, at least far less interested than the vast contents of the burial itself. What would what is your perception on Carter's attitude or relationship to the actual ancient Egyptians and specifically to Tutankhamun? Yeah, I think, well, first of all, Carter, in the end, was disappointed with the tomb mm. and said so. Mm. Because he, he, he had been hoping, he'd been hoping, hoping and hoping and hoping that he would learn more about Tutankhamun. You know, before the tomb was found, nobody knew anything about Tutankhamun. Nobody knew he was a boy king. Mm. There were popular songs when the tomb was first discovered there were popular songs like Old King Tut was a wild old nut. You know, the idea was that he was an old man like all the other pharaohs. Nobody knew this until they finally got to the mummy, you know, three years later after the discovery of the tomb. And Carter was interested in finding out about Tutankhamun as a person, as a person. He was. So he felt this connection, as you suggest, with Tutankhamun. Hmm. And, and he said after the tomb was all cleared, he said, in the end, he escaped us. That hmm. He didn't really learn as much about Tutankhamun as he wanted. He was hoping for papyri, things mm. that would tell about his parents, uh, things like that. And there was none of that in the tomb. That's what he was looking for. He didn't really realize that mummies are like little encyclopedias, mm. that if you know how to read them, you can get a lot of information out. 
And he just wasn't there. I think that's also why the mummy wasn't x-rayed, you know, for years, until years later, you know, you didn't get an x-ray of Tut right away. I mean, if it were today, you know, we'd have x-ray. They were portable x-ray machines in Carter's day. You could have done it. You mm-hmm. could have done it. But no, no. So we didn't get x-rays, you know, for years later because Carter just didn't realize mummies could give you the answers he was looking for. Mm-hmm. Understandable. So that that naturally leads to a question that you previously have written quite substantially on, which is the mummy of Tutankhamun and specifically his death. Yes. So first of all, what is your assessment of the the current scientific situation with Tutankhamun's death? What do you think is the most likely of the explanations put forward? Well, you know, I wrote this book called The Murder of Tutankhamun. Hmm. And since that book, that's probably 20 years old now. And since that book, we've had new research. You know, one of the things I like to show my and one of the things I said in my book is that the X-ray of Tutankhamun, when they finally got around to X-raying him, showed that there was a blow to the back of the head, which could have been the cause of death, and that may have been a murder. That was my theory that I put forward in the book. Um, one thing I'm absolutely certain of now: there was no blow to the back of the head. Okay. The the better later CAT scans show that it wasn't really it's really an artifact of the X-ray not a blow to the back of the head. So he didn't die from a blow to the back of the head. I'm sure of that. Um, I still think he may have been murdered. And, and the reason I say that, and I said it in my book, is that the circumstantial evidence is what I really based my theory on. The, the blow to the back of the head was a little bit of icing on the cake for me because I could point to something and say, there's the, there's the, the, the murder cause. Um, but um, Ankasen Amon, his widow, his teenage widow, wrote this amazing letter to the Hittite king, Chukululuma, great name, and, and says, my husband has died. They say you have many sons. You know, I have no sons. Send me one of your sons. I will marry him and make him king of Egypt. Never will I marry a servant of mine, I'm afraid. Now, why is the, is the queen of Egypt afraid? And why is she writing to the enemy, the Hittite king, saying, send me one of your sons and I'll marry him? You know, she's going to put a Hittite on the throne? Something strange is going on. And my feeling was that this suggests maybe... There were turbulent times, and maybe she knows Tutankhamun was killed. Maybe she knows her husband was murdered, uh, perhaps. But she's certainly afraid, and it's a hostile situation. And then she disappears from from history. Mm. That's the last thing we have of her, really. Um, so that those circumstances suggested to me that this could be a murder, though certainly it ain't by a blow to the back of the head. That's for sure. So if <clears throat> if it was a a violent, non natural death. Are you willing to speculate on what the circumstances might have been? No. <laughs> no, no. I really, I really don't know what the real cause is. Well, why would somebody want to kill Tutankhamun? You know, um, maybe somebody wants to become king of Egypt. Mm. And we do have this remarkable thing that I, A-Y-E, a commoner, becomes the next king. Mm. That's pretty shocking. And maybe when, when, when Anka Sanaman is saying, Never will I marry a servant of mine. The servant is I. Mm. Actually, he would become king by marrying Ankasanaman. Not only that, there was a finger ring found, which has the two cartouches of I and Ankasanaman showing they were married. So somehow, against her will, Ankasanaman winds up marrying I, and then she disappears, and I becomes king of Egypt. Um, so, you know, if anybody you know, did it. I think it's I, you know. And, you know, when we did this TV show about the murder of Tutankhamun years back, we had these wonderful TV t-shirts we made, which on the back said, well, the front says, who who killed Tutankhamun? 
and on the back it says i did it <laughs> ayee yeah we I still have one of those in a closet somewhere it's a keeper okay <laughs> For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. So, yeah, so it has been 20 years since the, the murder of uh, Tutankhamun and 100 years since the discovery of Tutankhamun and 3,000 years since the actual death of Tutankhamun. <laughs> yes, yes. Of course, our scientific and Egyptological knowledge of mummies, anthropological examination forensics has advanced considerably since Carter and Derry did their analysis. But this information doesn't always filter out in the fullest detail to the public and i've noticed with um particularly on social media you know with as the uh promotion for the forthcoming book starts to ramp up i do notice many people asking questions that are fundamentally based on the dna study that was done in the early 2000s and published around 2010 right and that study within academic circles has been widely critiqued and questioned in terms of some of its conclusions and the the way it arrives at its conclusions. So I wanted to get your your input as somebody who has dealt with mummies, who has, you know, examined this these sort of questions from every conceivable angle that you can. Looking at these studies of Tutankhamun, Yuya and Chuya, KV55, all these mummies that we have from the late Amana period, how much do we really know about the relationships of these individuals and how much is still entirely speculative based on certain scraps? I'm very cautious about the DNA studies. When I say cautious, I, I feel I can't accept it at face value yet. The reason I say it is, is a broad reason. You know, it's been criticized on specifics, of course. Uh, many people don't accept it. But the reason I'm cautious is that it comes out of a laboratory in Egypt that doesn't have a record of working with ancient DNA. They don't have a long series of publications for the last 20 years of working on ancient DNA, and it's very difficult to work on ancient DNA. So when they came out with this new finding, a new laboratory coming out with it, it needs replication. You need to give samples to another outside laboratory and ask them, please see if you can confirm our findings. And they're not willing to give their samples out. Um, no samples are leaving Egypt, we're told. So because it hasn't been replicated, I'm still standing back and saying, I can't really base anything on this yet. So all of these family trees of Tutankhamun that we see of so-and-so is married to so-and-so and this is this, I really can't accept it yet. It may be right. I don't know. But I will give you a news bulletin. Okay. Um, I was contacted about two weeks ago by a film team for National Geographic who are doing a show on a new study of the DNA of Tutankhamun okay. and the royal family. And it's coming out of Egypt, of course, because the samples won't leave Egypt, so it has to be coming out of Egypt. And they, they, they said they're doing a TV show and um, they wanted to do an interview with me and I explained, I really can't talk about the DNA. And they said, that's okay, you can talk about some other aspect of Tutankhamun that we want, the mummy or whatever. 
And I said, well, I could do that, I guess. And then I just got an email about a week ago saying, it's taking longer to get the DNA than we thought. So mm -hmm. please hang on. So mm -hmm. there may be new evidence for Tutankhamun and, and DNA. Um, and it'll be very interesting to see if it confirms the older study mm. and we'll see if it gets confirmation outside. So I'm on the fence about the DNA. I'm really holding back on that one. And so just to follow up on that, uh, have they done a new physical examination of the body or is this the same, the same, the same data from the original study that's being re-examined? No, no, no. I think it's new samples being run by a new team. I think it's new, new samples being run anew. So it's all new, I believe. Okay. Well, fingers crossed that is hopefully yeah. fruitful. And that does sound interesting. Stay tuned. Mm. Another thing you touch on in the book um, with regards to Tutankhamun's body is his physical capabilities. Because again, in the early 2000s, there were some you know very widely published studies that suggested that Tutankhamun was quite physically crippled, uh, possibly a club foot, always leaning on a cane, perhaps even barely mobile in some circumstances or some uh, respects. What is your assessment of the information that we can actually derive from Tutankhamun's body? How physically capable was he actually? As far as I can tell, he was a normal teenager. I don't see any evidence of this club foot. Um, as you know, there, there was a book called um, Scanning the Pharaohs. There's a, there's a, a book where they did a, a CAT scans, which is better than x-rays, more, more detailed than x-rays. They did CAT scans, and one of the one of the scans they said showed that he had a club foot. And when I looked at it, I didn't see the club foot. Um, mm. And and I know that an orthopedic surgeon wrote to them and said, "I looked at the scan. I didn't see the club foot either." You know. So I think the the scan clearly isn't isn't definitive. Mm. We can't say he had a club foot. But there are other reasons why I say he didn't have a club foot. For example, if he had a club foot, now first he was examined as you mentioned earlier in the in the cast podcast by Douglas Derry, who was an anatomist. Mm. Now, he may have been a butcher. He may not have cared about Tutankhamun's mummy and torn him apart, but he certainly knew what anatomy was. He was a good anatomist. And he removed the gold sandals from Tutankhamun's feet. And he didn't say, my God, look at this club foot. Also, when he was x-rayed by Harrison in the 60s, nobody saw a club foot. And these guys are skilled anatomists. So mm. they didn't see a club foot either. Kind of curious. But if he had a club foot, probably the lower limbs of the leg would have been deformed. There would have been an asymmetry. Or even think about how if you have one leg a little bit shorter than the other, how it hurts your pelvis. You know, the, the, the head of the femur, the largest leg bone, fits into the acetabulum of the pelvis. It's a, it's a little cup-like thing. And it'll wear away. You'll have to have a hip replacement. Um, and, you know, there's none of this in time. We have his x-rays. His pelvis is perfectly symmetrical. Even further, if he really did walk on the side of his foot, as it was suggested, his shoes would be worn asymmetrically. We have dozens of pairs of his shoes, no signs of wear at all. So I'm, I'm really pretty sure that he didn't have a club foot, not just that we have to wait for further evidence. I think he didn't have a club foot, and I think he was a normal teenager as far as I can tell. And as I say in the book, he could have even been a warrior. Very good. So there we have it. So no evidence as far as you can see of the supposed yeah. crippling conditions that have been proposed. Interesting. No, no. One of the things I'm concerned about my book is, is how my friends are going to react because mm. all my friends are doing these studies, you know, like I, I you know, and, and I'm saying, well, I really don't think so. I don't think if this is right. 
I'm, I'm curious to see, you know, how they take the, the criticisms. I think they'll take it well. I mean, because I think I'm even-handed. I think I'm not not being, you know, vicious or anything like that. But I think we have to be more cautious about some of these data that are coming out. And, and reanalyzing it shows that wasn't exactly as it's been said. Mm-hmm. Okay, fair enough. No, having having read your discussion, I think it's professionally fair. You're not oh, throwing good. you're not throwing shade at anyone. You're just saying I I see the evidence differently, and that is yeah. I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad to hear you think it's fair. That's good. The best we can do in this profession. None of it's certain. Yes. So I won't. No one be writing who murdered Bob Breyer. <laughs> well, well, we'll find, we'll find out. All right. So broadly speaking, you are widely known as one of the the Egyptologists who is most interested and attentive to mummies as a as a field of research. And one of the more noteworthy experiments you undertook in the 1990s was to actually mummify a human being according to the ancient records that were available at the time. Guilty. <laughs> I mean I will say personally that I I was about nine when that documentary came out, and I watched it many times on a National Geographic documentary, and I enjoyed it very much. My question is, looking back on that experience, what would you say were the most influential lessons that you gained from actually doing that, both Mm -hmm. in terms of how you understand mummies as a physical artifact, but also in terms of the, the process that the Egyptians were taking and what it really involved Mm -hmm. yeah actually um i learned a tremendous amount from doing the mummification um i think that the way mummification had been viewed before my project was incorrect in many aspects and that goes back thousands of years how the greeks viewed the egyptians even was incorrect because they hadn't mummified now the greeks often said that the Egyptians were wonderful anatomists because they did mummification. So they had knowledge of the body. They took out internal organs, they took out the brain, they did all this. So they knew the body better than anyone. And the Greeks didn't practice vivisection or anything like that. So they, they, they cremated, they, you know, they, they never cut open a body. So they really thought the Egyptians really knew what they were doing. And when I actually did the mummification, the little light bulb went on above my head that no, the Egyptians didn't know much about anatomy um, because you don't learn anatomy by putting your hand in a little incision in the abdomen and pulling out internal organs, you know, because you don't see the relative positions of the organs. Um, when, we would, when we did anatomy in medical school, you open the flap. You have an abdominal flap and you can see where the liver is, where the stomach is, where the intestines are. The Egyptians didn't know this. They, they made a small incision in the left flank because they wanted to simply keep the body as intact as possible for resurrection, right? So Mm. they didn't learn anatomy. As a matter of fact, their anatomy was pretty limited. And if you think about it, you know, after doing the mummification, if you think about it, why are there four canopic jars where they put the internal organs? You certainly have more than four internal organs, Mm. right? Stomach, liver, intestines, right? What about the gallbladder? What about the spleen? What about, you know, you've got lots of lungs. You got lots of internal organs. They didn't know much about anatomy. Even if we, when we examine mummies, ancient Egyptian mummies, we find that in half of them, the kidneys are still in place. Hmm. Now, why are the kidneys in place? The answer is they're retroperitoneal. 
They are behind a thick membrane. And when the Egyptians were mummifying, they would put their hand inside the little incision, reach all the way back, and they'd feel this smooth membrane. And they would say, ah, we got it all. <laughs> behind that membrane were kidneys. So I think half of the embalmers didn't know that there were kidneys and they left them in place. So learned a lot about it. And one of the big things was the Egyptians really didn't know much anatomy. As a matter of fact, now you're a student of Egyptology. You've learned hieroglyphs. The hieroglyphs that we have today of parts of the body are usually animals' parts. So for example, if you look mm. the word, at the word for ear, that's not a human ear, mm. right? It's a bovine ear, right? It's not yeah. a human ear. Yeah. And, and the same with the heart. If you look at the heart, that's a bovine heart. Mm. The Egyptians had cattle. That's how they knew their anatomy, from slaughtering. So when mm. you get the hieroglyphs, they're almost always animal parts, not human parts. Mm. So I think they really didn't 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 know their their anatomy, you know. So and even the things that we thought about how they did it don't work. For example, the hardest part undoubtedly was removing the brain through the nose. Mm. We always had this sort of almost folkloric tale about how they would put a hooked instrument through the nose and pull out the brain a piece at a time. Mm. Right? I tried it. You can't get a brain out that way. It didn't work. It didn't work. I, I eventually I figured out how they did it. I put a, a hooked instrument through the through the nose, breaking through what's called a cribriform plate. There's a there's a, a very thin bone behind the nasal passage right there, and you go through the through the. There's, there's a bone also called the ethmoid bone. It's an interesting etymology. Ethmoid means sieve, as mm -hmm. in a, a, a colander, a sieve, okay. um, and it's, it's honey honeycombed. So it's very so they called it a sieve. But anyway, through the ethmoid bone, and I went into the the cranium. And then what I did to get the brain out, I realized you had to liquefy the brain. You turn this thing around and around inside the cranium like a whisk and liquefy the brain, break it down. And then you invert the cadaver and the brain runs out through the nasal passages. Mm. That's how you get the brain out. And that's how they did it. And then I wondered, you know, how did they make sure they got it all out? Mm. You can't x-ray. You know, we could x-ray. You can't x-ray. And then I realized what they probably did was, and I did this. They took a piece of linen and they would force it through the nasal passage into the cranium. And then with the instrument, you use it like a swab. You go around and wipe the cranial vault and all around, and then you pull it out. And it comes out red, it comes out bloody with and with gray matter on it, dura matter, and, and it comes out. And you keep doing that until it comes out clean. Keep putting in new linen. And then when it comes out clean, you know you got the whole brain evacuated. So I'm learning how they must have done it also than how they didn't do it and have and what they didn't know so it was a really really educational experience for me to do the mummification even for example how much natron do you need to mummify a body you know you pour this salt and then carbon you know sodium carbonate sodium bicarbonate on it and you and you how much do you need nobody knew it's 400 pounds it's a lot of natron it's a lot of natron and then i tried to reuse it to see if you could break it down and use it again it doesn't work it only works once it's absorbed the moisture and that's it. So every mummy took 400 pounds of natron if it was done properly. So learned a lot from doing this. So it's, it's, it's often very, very educational to do things, not just look at them and try to figure it out. You know, you want to know how they built furniture, build some ancient Egyptian furniture with their drills, and then you'll figure it out and you'll know how long it took. Fair enough. It's interesting that 
that sort of makes me think it's interesting how studying mummies we often do them within medical schools or medical facilities partly because that's where we have the technology but for the ancient egyptians mummification really wasn't necessarily a medical process it was a fundamentally religious one they're not necessarily the same people mummifying a human as the ones who are healing a human that's right the physicians were not the physicians were not the mummifiers mm. as a matter of fact as far as we can tell the mummifiers were probably a little lower on the social scale than most people. Because we even have records of, of the, there was one guy called the slitter who would mm -hmm. come and make the incision on the body. And then they say ritually, they threw stones at him because he had defiled the body, right? Mm -hmm. And he ran away. So that was a ritual. And, and the mummifiers, you know, would have smelled badly. You know, they, mm -hmm. they, 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 was, you know, they would, have, would have been around corpses and cadavers and, and chemicals, and they would have smelled. So I think they were a bit on the outskirts of society. So they were not the medical people by any means, no. Interesting, so. By the way, it was the same in medical schools at the turn of the century. Very often you didn't have physicians even doing the, 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 the anatomy, the, the cutting of the cadaver. You would have someone, I won't say it was the janitor, but you'd have somebody who was an assistant who would mm. do that dirty work and the professor would lecture as he's doing the cutting. Interesting, <laughs> did not know that, that's fun. So you, you learned a great deal in terms of the ancient Egyptian knowledge and certain details about what, what you need to mummify a human. With all that you've worked on since and you know, learned and researched and things, if you could do it again today, would, you, would there be any significant changes in how you approached it or how you undertook the process? I think there'd be a, a few. Um... One of the things that we do, we still do it. The mummy is still intact at the University of Maryland Medical School where we did the mummification. Um, and we check on him every few years to see if he's deteriorating or whatever. And, he, and he's looking pretty good. I mean, he looks like an ancient Egyptian mummy and with no signs of deterioration. But one of the things I would have liked to have done is weigh him every day. I would have liked to have known how much water is he losing every day. Um, we didn't do that. It would During have been nice. The embalming process, you mean? Yeah, 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 absolutely. It would have been nice to see because at the end of the process, he was, you know, he's down to like 39 pounds or so. You know, that's that's about right for a mummy because if you see ever see, ever see archaeologists moving mummies, they're not heavy. Mm. You know, you can lift one on your own because because mostly water, mm. and the water's gone. Um, so I would have liked to have weighed him every day, put it put it on a table which had a scale, permanent scale, and seen. What was the process? How long was it before he's really dehydrated? Things like that. Um, so that's one of the things I would have done differently. But that's mainly the main one because we, you know, we did it the Egyptian way, so we couldn't change much. You know, we 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 did everything the way we wanted to do it. So we did it pretty much the way we wanted to do it. I hope someone else does it. Someone should repeat it. Um, I've had requests to be on teams that wanted to repeat um, the, the 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 experiment, but they never did it. Um, I never I never wanted to do it again. I I, I sort of. Been there, done that, got the T-shirt. I, I I don't want to do it again. I don't see any need for repeating it for me. But I think someone else should repeat it, and they might learn more. But just no one's come forward yet and done it yet. Um, hmm. so I hope somebody does. Well, if anyone is listening who wants to do it, there's your go ahead. Yep. So I'd like to I'd like to move now to a few questions about Egyptology generally and your your career and your experience of it. So one of the, I think one of the most important questions that elicits a wide variety of responses is what is Egyptology exactly? How would you define it? 
Well, that's an easy one. You know, it's a study of ancient Egypt um, and in all its aspects. So, for example, you can study pyramids. That could be your interest. You can study mummies. That could be your interest. Maybe you're a philologist, a lover of language, and you study the language. So it's just a study of ancient Egypt. That's that's an easy question to answer. Okay. And where does ancient Egypt end for you? I'm not sure what you mean when you say so, where does it end. So broadly speaking, uh, where would the chronological cutoff point be for oh. a person studying Egypt, ancient Egyptian history, but beyond what is ancient and what becomes uh -huh. early modern? Yeah, for, for, for me personally, if it happened after 30 BC, I don't care about it. <laughs> you know, with, the end, with the end of the Greeks, the Ptolemies, Cleopatra, all of that, that's about where the interest ends for me. There are, of course, people who are specialists in the later period. They're Coptologists. They study the Coptic language and, and the Coptic period, that kind of thing. So there are people who are specialists in late Egyptology, that kind of thing. But for me, Cleopatra, it's over after the Ptolemies. That's it. Okay. Everything else is current events. <laughs> Fair enough. And this is this next question is one that I ask of every every scholar who comes on this show, and it's um, kind of a way of gauging different um, interests. Is that if you if you had the opportunity to definitively settle one debate or one question from ancient history or ancient Egyptian history specifically, if you could know the answer to one question definitively what would you choose to know and why? What happened to Ankhesenamun? Hmm. That's the question. It's, it's bothered me ever since I wrote The Murder of Tutankhamun. Hmm. I, I wonder about her all the time. Mm -hmm. What happened to Ankhesenamun? She writes this fearful letter. Never will I marry a servant of mine. She winds up married to I, and then she disappears from history. We don't have any tomb for her. Mm. We don't have any record of her, and she's the pharaoh's wife. Mm. She is, she is the Hemet Weret, the great wife, because I becomes king by marrying Ankhesenamun. She has the pure royal blood. Mm. How, you know, how could this happen that she disappears from history? Um, that's something I wonder about all the time. I mean, I, I, you know, I've been to I's tomb to look for any traces of Ankhesenamun. Um, she should be all over the walls, but she's not. Um, it's his other wife, Tay, um, mm. and and we don't hear a word about Ankhesenamun. So I, I worry for her well-being. I, you know, in, in retro worrying, I would really like to know what happened to her. Mm. I don't think we're ever going to find her tomb. I don't think she had one. Mm. I think she may have been dispatched. Also, understandable. There we go. So that brings me to the end of the questions that I had prepared for this. But if you still have time, I have a few questions from my subscribers on Patreon. Sure. Happy. Um, to including apparently a couple of people who you know personally. So hopefully this will be a couple of little in questions for you. Hmm. The first question comes from Manu, <clears throat> who asks, um, and I'm going to quote here, says, Carter, for all his faults, was a meticulous archaeologist. But did Carter and Derry go too far in unwrapping and breaking up Tutankhamun's mummy? It seems like a destru destructive and disrespectful act when viewed today. And... The standards of the time were not necessarily lower. We touched on this earlier. So why, uh, what is your assessment in terms of just the professional approach to that? Yeah, I think I agree with Mono that, that, that it was destructive, more destructive than it had to be. And I think, it, I think even in, in, in Carter's time, it's, it was inexcusable. We, we've had 
other royal mummies examined, and they weren't examined like this one being taken apart. Um, even in Maspero's time, Gaston Maspero's time, um, they had the royal mummy cache, and they were unwrapped, but they weren't taken apart. Um, Tutankhamun, of course, was a special situation because he was stuck in these oils that had been poured on the mummy. So it was much more difficult to extricate him from the coffin, from the gold coffin. You know, it was very difficult. But still, I don't think enough care was given. You know, my feeling is that if Carter had seen an artifact like, say, the gold throne stuck in the oils, you know, congealed, he would have figured out a way to find a solvent for the oils. He wasn't going to cut that thing up in pieces. He wasn't going to take a throne and take it into pieces. But they did do that with Tutankhamun. They severed him in, at, at the fifth lumbar vertebra and stuff like that. So I think, yeah, they, 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 they did, did damage that they didn't have to do. There we go. Now, Michael asks, was there anything in the process of mummifying a human that you found difficult, which you think the ancients would have found easy, and mm. vice versa, anything that you found easy that you think the ancient workers might have struggled with? Nice question. Um, I'll, t I'll tell you the one that I found difficult, that, that so difficult that I didn't even want to attempt it. Now, you know I had a, a co-worker on this project, Ron Wade. As the, as the project was shown on, say, National Geographic documentary specials about it, things like that, I'm always the one who's featured. Ron is the one who had the knowledge. Ron was really the guy who knew anatomy much better than I. He was the one in charge of the University Medical School's anatomy division. And Ron was really great. Now, another reason Ron was better than me in many ways is that Ron is shorter than I am. I have big hands. I'm, I'm, I'm big. <laughs> and I have big hands. And it's hard to work in small spaces. When you make a little incision, three and a half inches in the abdomen, you're sticking your, I'm trying to stick my big hands in. And the hard thing, the hardest thing to do that Ron did, I said, Ron, you better do this one, is removing the lungs without severing the heart. Because the windpipe goes up past the heart, you know, you have, it, they're, they're in very close proximity. And mm. you're working in the dark through this little incision and you're feeling your way. You feel one lobe of the lung, another lobe of the lung. You've got the heart, but you've got the aorta, you've got the superior vena cava, you've got all of these things going on. How do you make sure you don't sever the heart and that it stays in place? That I thought was very hard. And I said, Ron, you've got to do this. So Ron <laughs> Waite did that. So that's one thing that I really thought those ancient embalmers were pretty good, you know, in, in that respect, on that, to be able to do that. But they had a lot of experience of working blind. Mm. At least working blind, they could feel around. They've, they've, they've been there four or five times, six times, seven times. Then you get the hang of it. So Ron did that, and I was very happy that Ron did that. So I really appreciated ancient skills there. I think, I guess the thing that I, that I thought I could do better than, well, in some ways, was the brain. I knew right away you're not going to get a brain out with little pieces of hook. So there, mm. were, there were lots of things I learned that way. Nice question. That, uh, that prompts a question from me specifically. Um, you mentioned that you, you know, you have much larger hands, perhaps, than an average ancient Egyptian male. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, do we do we have a good idea of the average uh, ancient Egyptian male's rough hand size, and how would that how does that compare to what we know of the incisions on mummies? Yeah, well, interesting. Um, the average male is about five five, five six in in ancient Egypt. So we would have similar hands, a proportionate hands. Um, so you don't get many guys like me say well over six feet and with big mm -hmm. hands. Um, so, so five five is average, and, and their hands would have been a little bit maybe more facile than mine. Ron is about five six, five seven. So, that that worked out. Yeah. Okay. So it does match up. Very good. Yeah. Yeah. 
Now, Lucas asks a question about the Great Pyramid. Not Alfred Lucas. No, Alfred Lucas I hope not. that would be an no. alarming That's turn of events. Right. So Lucas asks, regarding the Great Pyramid and its construction, do you yeah. still support or believe in Jean-Pierre Houdin's internal ramp theory, or has your thinking changed in recent years? My thinking has changed. Okay. Um, when, 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 I, when I met Jean-Pierre, you know, I, I thought, this is fascinating. This is wonderful. We've got to go to Egypt. He, never, he had never been to Egypt. He was an architect who was interested in the pyramid as sort of an abstract concept, and he wanted to figure out how it was built. But when I said to him, what do you think of the Great Pyramid when you first saw it? He said, oh, I've never been there. I, was, I thought that was crazy. So anyway, Nat Geo was willing to fund us to, to send me off to Egypt with Jean-Pierre, and we went through Egypt looking at all this stuff. And I thought his theory was absolutely right on the internal ramp. It made a lot of sense. Um, we found some evidence for other internal ramps and other buildings. Um, we came back, we wrote a book together called Secret of the Great Pyramid. Um, and I was absolutely convinced that this is the way it was done. But then more recently, there have been studies of the Great Pyramid using cosmic rays, rays from outer space going through the pyramid. And you can use them to almost make an X-ray. You do muons you can do an x-ray of the pyramid. Mm -hmm. And if the internal ramp was there inside the pyramid, these studies would have found it. Mm -hmm. Not there. It's not there. It's the only good theory we had of how the pyramid was built, and it's wrong. So that's my belief now. Jean-Pierre is still clinging to it. Mm -hmm. um, I haven't talked to Jean-Pierre in a couple of years because you know I, I sort of left the theory. I, I, think, I think when the data show that, that a theory is wrong, you just have to give it up kind of like my blow to the back of the head, you know, it's wrong. That's it. Move on. That's science. Um, so I, I'm convinced that the, the internal ramp isn't there now. Okay. Um, <clears throat> if you'll permit me to ask a devil's advocate question. Yeah. If, say, hypothetically, they were doing an internal ramp and, you know, constructing up to the top, would they have filled it in with blocks as they went back down? And would that change how visible it was in a scan? If they had filled it in, it would change how visible it is in a scan, but they're not going to fill it in because it's a hell of a lot of work. Uh, they're going to seal the pyramid and that's it. Okay, fair enough. So broadly speaking, the current evidence does not support an internal ramp theory. That's right. In I think that's right. Yeah. Mm. Disappointing as it is to me and John, you know, mm. yeah. To the, to the best of your knowledge, um, most of these scans seem to have focused on the Great Pyramid. Are they, do you happen to know if they're doing any on the other pyramids like Khafra, Menkaura, Abusia? Khafra's pyramid has been, has been scanned in a similar way. Okay. Um, that's been scanned. Look, they're always looking for hidden chambers. Yeah. So Khafra's was, was scanned quite a few years ago, actually, this way, and, and, and nothing really revealed. Also, recently, recently, um, I mean, maybe five years ago, something like that, somebody, there was a Japanese team that went over the, um, they actually climbed the Step Pyramid at Saqqara with lasers on their backs, which we did a laser kind of scan of the whole pyramid. So they had a complete record of that pyramid. So the Great Pyramid, the Kefren Pyramid, and the uh, Step Pyramid of Saqqara have had some kinds of studies done that way. Okay, very good. Now, uh, Valentin Parks uh, asks a question. Val Parks. There we yeah. go. Yep, he said, he says, please ask Bob about Zahi Hawass's assessment of the Queen's Chamber. No further elaboration. I'm assuming you know what he means. No. Okay. I don't. I mean, maybe he's thinking about the um, the air shafts in the Queen Chamber. Zahi did some study with the 
with a little robotic camera and things like that. But no, I really don't know. Okay. I wondered if maybe he was referring to any suggestion that the Queen's chamber was originally Khufu's burial chamber and then repurposed. Well, that's standard. I mean, most people think that. Most people think that Khufu had three burial chambers, depending upon when he died. You start the pyramid. There's one that's underground. So if he dies within the first five or six years of construction, you have something ready for him. That's the first. But he's alive and well, and we keep building the pyramid. And now we have the queen's chamber, which is higher up, but he's alive and well. So now we keep going, and now we have the final burial chambers. That's what most people think, and I think that's probably right. I think the it was intended for Khufu. Yeah. Very good. Okay, the final question is not a question, it's a comment. It's from Sean. Sean simply says, please pass on my thanks for Dr. Breyer's hieroglyphs course. It got me really going with being able to read the ancient texts, and I always recommend his works heartily to any of my friends interested in Egyptology. Oh, that's very kind. Thank you. I mean, I'm glad that yeah, I do have a hieroglyph course with the teaching company. They And it's, it's designed for people who just want to learn you know, enough hieroglyphs to understand how the language works. And, and to be able to translate simple text. So it's not an advanced course by any means, but I think it's something that, I think people always wondered about hieroglyphs and there are many people who want to learn hieroglyphs, you know? So I think that's great. Thank mm -hmm. you, Sean. Very good. And I will make sure to add a link to that in the description for this episode, if people want to learn more. So that brings me to the end of my questions. So Dr. Breyer, thank you very much for joining me on the show and you know answering these questions. I think it's been really interesting, especially to to get the sense of how your views have changed over over the years, because as you say, you know, Egyptology is a science and science is ever evolving. And as new information comes out, your ideas change. So thank you for coming on and answering these questions. And I hope you've enjoyed your time speaking with us. Well, thank you for having me. And I really did enjoy it. And I enjoy your podcasts. Oh, very good. Thank you. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.